Father, um, through your word and in the power of your spirit, may you cause Jesus to be king of our heart in a little bit deeper way this morning. Amen. So it's an honor for me um, to open up the scriptures with you this morning. Our text for this morning is the gospel reading um, from the lectionary. It's been a joy and also a challenge for me to dive into this text because it contains in it um, Mark's summary statement of the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. Growing up in church, we never talked about the kingdom of God, which is somewhat surprising because it's a big idea in the New Testament and it's mentioned over a hundred times. My church growing up taught me to love Jesus and trust the scriptures, and for that I'm very, very grateful. But there was something lacking. For the most part, we were taught to be concerned with two things, evangelizing and behaving ourselves. Good things, you know, to be sure, but I needed to know how to understand the world and my place in it more broadly. I needed to be able to understand the nuts and bolts of my faith and of my life in terms of my faith for it to really make the difference I knew it was supposed to. For me, the kingdom of God helps flesh things out. I'm very thankful to be here in a church that speaks of and indeed seeks the kingdom of God. This morning, I'd like to work through our text and then speak a bit more broadly about the kingdom of God and then come back to our text as we think about how to respond. We will see, I think, that the text offers for us a good word as we journey through Lent. So Mark uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Mark uses the first section of his book, starting in verse 1, to orient us to Jesus, to establish Jesus' authority, to let us know where he's coming from. That's very important in the honor-shame society that Mark is writing in, but he doesn't use the genealogy of Jesus like Luke and Matthew. Instead, Mark calls Jesus the Son of God and uses the book of Isaiah to give us our context. As we go, we'll see that Mark uses Isaiah a lot, and in Isaiah, we begin to catch a vision of the kingdom. When Mark gets to our passage, we have John, Isaiah's voice crying in the wilderness, baptizing Jesus. Mark is sparse with his detail. In seven verses, he handles Jesus' baptism, his temptation, and the summary of Jesus' teaching at the beginning of his ministry. 
The narrative moves at a rapid pace, so the little detail that is there deserves our attention. In both Matthew and Luke, the account of Jesus' baptism reads that the heavens opened. But in Mark, the heavens are torn open. They are rent asunder. In Isaiah 64.1, in a prayer to Yahweh, it's the same word. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Mark's allusion here is a reference to Yahweh coming in power to make things right for his people. Further, in Mark, the voice from heaven says of Jesus, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Again, allusions to Isaiah. Isaiah 42.1 Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That's the connection. My chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Israel was God's chosen people. But in Jesus, we are seeing a new chosen one. God is finally acting on behalf of Israel. Jesus does what John is calling Israel to do. He is baptized. And he is going to demonstrate himself to be God's true son. Jesus is referred to God's son in verses 1 and here again in verse 11. And it's important to be clear on what this means. Mark doesn't mean what we mean. He isn't weighing in on Trinitarian theology. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. And in verse 7, the Lord speaks to the anointed king, You are my son. The same words that the voice from heaven says to Jesus. This title of God's son places Jesus in the line of the Davidic king. It makes him the Messiah. Continuing on in our passage, Mark's account of Jesus' temptation is very short. Two verses as compared to 11 for Matthew and 13 for Luke. As such, Mark isn't giving us an example to follow as much as he's continuing to demonstrate who Jesus is. After Jesus goes through the water of baptism, immediately he is driven into the wilderness for 40 days. Does this sound familiar? Going through the water, tempted in the wilderness for 40 years, I mean days. This is meant to make us think of Israel and the Red Sea. And where Israel has failed, we see that Jesus succeeds. He does not succumb to temptation. I know I said the primary point of Mark's account here wasn't to provide us an example, but there are a few things worth noting as an aside. Matthew and Luke say the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Mark says the Spirit drove him. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. It sounds pretty harsh. We can dress it up, but the journey that God has us on is a difficult desert sometimes. The text says that angels were ministering to him. God provided the necessary assistance along the path that he led down. Don't mistake the briefness of our discussion here for shallowness. Mark goes out of his way 
to signal for us that this was not a Sunday school picnic in the park for Jesus. The Spirit drove him into the wild desert for 40 days, you know, the place where the wild animals are, but God gave the resources for the journey, and where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Gregory the Great said, the dynamics of temptation proceed first by suggestion, then by taking delight in the suggestion, then by consent. That might be worth chewing on a little this Lent. The dynamics of temptation proceed first by suggestion, then by taking delight in the suggestion, then by consent. What we see in our passage is that God provides the necessary resources for the journey he leads us on, and in the other gospel accounts of Jesus' temptation, we see that scripture is a big part of that. It is scripture that can help us break that cycle by showing us the truth so we don't take delight in the suggestion. Okay, so our aside is done. We're back to Mark's main concerns. At this point, what has Mark communicated to us about who Jesus is and what he's going to be about? He's God's son. Rather, he's the Messiah, the promised Davidic king, the one on whom God places his spirit and his authority. In Jesus, God is finally acting, as long promised, and he's acting in the specific context of Israel. So now we come to verse 14 and 15, to Jesus' first words in the book. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the gospel in a nutshell for Mark. Given what we've just seen Mark saying about Jesus, it should not come as a surprise that we see him talking about a kingdom. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. Not chronos time, the word for the chronological wristwatch kind of time, but kairos time. It is the opportune time the right moment. And God is once again breaking into the story of Israel. It is also not a surprise that Mark doesn't give us much detail about what he's talking about. It will be helpful then to briefly speak more broadly about the kingdom of God and then turn back to what Mark is saying here. God is, of course, sovereign, always has been and always will be. But the kingdom of God refers to when his reign is established and made obvious in the concrete world of people, nations, and nature. This reign is characterized by shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace and my favorite word in all of scripture. In two-thirds of its occurrences in the Old Testament, shalom is the state of fulfillment, which is the result of God's presence. The kingdom is where the king is. Shalom is more than an absence of conflict. It is more than some static moment of zen or some personal warm and fuzzies. It's the positive presence of wholeness and harmony. I find it helpful to describe shalom and the kingdom of God in terms of four different aspects in order to flesh things out and kind of get the full flavor. They involve relationships, flourishing, justice, and our holistic. In unpacking these general thoughts, we will still draw heavily from the book of Isaiah 
to keep in line with Mark's gospel. So first, relationships. Shalom is about right relationships. It isn't just something that I feel inside or even just an experience between me and God. It's a harmonious and enriching relationship with God, with others, with creation, and within oneself. It's not just individuals, systems and groups will exist in this kind of relationship. Isaiah is more poetic. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. Second, the idea of shalom and the kingdom of God have an element of flourishing, of abundance, and fulfillment of potential. Listen to these verses from Isaiah 65, 19 to 22. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Flourishing, abundance, and fulfillment of potential. Third, justice is inherent in in shalom and the kingdom of God. Consider the scripture that Jesus reads in the synagogue at the beginning of his ministry in Luke 4, also from Isaiah, chapter 61, 1-2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I want to dwell on this aspect of justice just a bit because Isaiah talks about it a lot. Any talk of justice is normally a little bit uncomfortable for us because, well, most of us are by world standards rich and comfortable. And, let's let's face it, our economic system will sometimes proclaim Uh, exploit people and places for the sake of profit. Gary Haugen, president of the International Justice Mission, offers a definition of injustice that I think helps us move beyond a vague sense of guilt. He says, injustice occurs when power is misused to take from others what God has given them, namely their life, dignity, liberty, or the fruit of their love and labor. Doing justice then, or living in line with shalom and the kingdom of God, would be to use what power we have, be it our position, talent, time, purchasing power, other resources, or simply our kindness to enable people to enjoy what God has given them, their life, their dignity, liberty, or the fruit of their labor. Isaiah, in chapter 58, 
which Fred read in the Ash Wednesday service, has strong words to say about being dutiful with religious practices, but neglecting justice. So we would all, myself very much included, do well to take this aspect of the kingdom seriously, but we must move on. Fourth, the shalom of the kingdom of God is holistic. In case you haven't caught that flavor from the passages we've read so far, this includes all of life. Listen to the words of theologian John Stackhouse. This is a little long, but well worth it. We might do well to cultivate the regular asking of the question, what is the best way to honor God and advance the kingdom in what I am doing and what I plan to do next? The next time one is choosing a DVD, the next time one is choosing a date, the next time one is choosing a job. This question ought to be asked, for if it is not asked and asked frequently, then other values will in fact be determining our choices. When someone asks, therefore, what are you doing for the kingdom? We might well reply with any of the following. I'm mowing the lawn. I'm washing the dishes. I'm making a puzzle with my three-year-old. I'm paying the bills. I'm composing a poem. I'm talking with my mother on the phone. I'm teaching a neighbor child how to throw a ball. I'm writing the, ma- I'm writing the mayor. I'm preaching. Everything, everywhere, every moment. That is the scope of God's call on our lives, and that is the dignity our lives enjoy. So that's a quick intro into the character of the kingdom of God. And in Mark, Jesus announces that, it, announces that it's here, right? Not quite. He says it is near. It is at hand. What are we to make of the kingdom being near? You've probably heard this, but theologians like to talk about the kingdom as already and not yet. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the victory has been won. The kingdom has come. Sin and death have been defeated, and we have access through the cross to a restored relationship with God. And still we know that God's reign has not been fully realized in the way that Isaiah and the prophets looked for in the way that indeed we now look for. In Jesus, the future fully established reign of God is breaking into the present. There is undeniably a degree of mystery in this for us today, just as there was in Jesus' day. Still, there are some errors we would do well to avoid. Things will not necessarily get better and better or indeed worse and worse in some linear progression until Jesus comes. As before, when the kairos is right, Jesus will come. What's more, we're not talking about some health and wealth gospel or some individualized consumer personal peace where if you have enough faith, then you won't face difficulty or suffering anymore. That doesn't make sense of Jesus. The way of the king led to the cross, and so he says will be the life of his kingdom. Mark 8:34 If anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake 
and the Gospels will find it. Neither, though, are we talking about some kind of spiritualized kingdom that doesn't include the physical and material reality of the here and now, that doesn't make sense with Isaiah and the Old Testament vision of the kingdom, nor does it make sense with the preaching and the healing of Jesus. In the time that we have left, we need to focus a little on what this means for us. How do we respond? Hopefully by now, there's part of you that's saying, but Scott, you've forgotten a very important part of the passage. Yes, Jesus himself tells us how to respond. Repent and believe the good news. To repent is not merely feeling remorse. Not just saying I'm sorry and continuing on our way. Rather, it's a change of heart. It's a turning from. It's conversion. Mark says that John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance. This was nothing new. But Jesus adds the part about belief. Believe? Yes, well, believe what? That Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins? Yes, that is where all this is going. Mark makes that clear over and over in his gospel. The cross and resurrection are still the centerpiece of any gospel that bears the name of Jesus. There the victory was won. But that hasn't happened yet when Jesus preaches these words. Jesus is asking them to swear allegiance to him, to believe in him as the new but long foretold king. It's just that he's a different kind of king than they were looking for. They were looking for the kingdom, but they missed it because it was different than they expected. They'd forgotten that Israel was chosen to be a light to the nations, that all families of the earth were to be blessed through them. They'd forgotten that God's reign of shalom required a heart that issued forth in right relationships and justice and wasn't just a matter of following the rules and of throwing off the rule of the Romans. Jesus asked them to believe that the kingdom of, is at hand in him, but they don't recognize it. Similarly, I think our own expectations cloud our ability to see the kingdom. We look for the kingdom, for our security and our thriving in all kinds of things. Self, money, comfort, career, health, spouse, kids, and even religion, and on and on. All good things, potentially, but only when they are under the authority and character of the king. Jesus asks us to repent and believe. The verbs associated with the kingdom in the New Testament help us to not get carried away with all this kingdom talk. We are never asked to bring in the kingdom. We aren't commanded to build it, that is the work of Jesus. The kingdom is spoken of as inherited four times in the New Testament. Sixteen times the kingdom is entered. We repent and we believe. We align our lives with the king and the values of his kingdom and trust that he will bring it to pass in our lives and on the earth. What would it look like for you to align your life with the kingdom in a deeper way? What would it look like to seek first the kingdom? What would it look like to believe 
that we truly find the peace, security, joy, and purpose that we seek in Jesus as King. The reason that I have loved learning about the kingdom of God is that I wanted more than for my Savior to stick me in a lifeboat. Make no mistake, I was drowning in sin, like all of us, in desperate need of rescue. But I wanted more. I wanted a king who invites me into his kingdom. A king who shows me his way and bids me follow him into his world. A king who wants an ambassador. An ambassador ready for adventure and for the ordinary. A king returning with the power and authority to set all things to right. A king like Jesus. His kingdom is at hand. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear how we can repent and believe the good news. Amen.